Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless, with special guest Misha Tate. Now, from the Boingo Innovation Center in Las Vegas, welcome to the Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Hey, welcome uh, to the Boingo Innovation Center. It's great to be here. I'm Mike Finley, CEO of Boingo, and... Uh, very excited about tonight to have Misha Tate here with Brian Berger and Sports Business Radio. Uh, we made a, a big announcement today about our Wi-Fi 7 uh, that's right over here in the Better with Boingo area. I do want to thank Corning uh, for helping sponsor tonight's event and being here. Um, thank you for, for doing that. Um, so look, we've, we've been in this facility uh, about a year. We launched it here a year ago and uh, we're very excited to, to be here tonight. Um, as I mentioned, we have Misha Tate, uh, UFC champion uh, who's, and a local Las Vegas resident who's with us here tonight, and Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. For you golfers out there, uh, he, he's the one who broke the story that Tiger Woods is no longer with Nike on Sunday, and so here we are on Tuesday. Um, but tonight we're here uh, to, uh, to talk with Misha Tate. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Brian Berger. How's everyone doing? Thanks for being here. Um, we are in year 20 of sports business radio. So we were podcasting when no one knew what podcasting was. Um, very excited to be back at the Boingo Innovation Center. This is such a great facility. We love our partnership with Boingo. Um, we have not talked a lot of UFC on sports business radio in the last 20 years. So I'm so excited to welcome Misha Tate. Misha, come join me up here if you would. Give her a hand. This is already on, right? This is already on. Yes. Thank you so much for being here and for joining us. Oh, yeah. I mean, if nothing else, the view is great. Have you guys seen that sphere? That thing's incredible. This is awesome. Um, all right. So let's start with your, your early life because I'm just so impressed. You were on the boys wrestling team in high school. Like you were, you were taking on the boys. Tell us about how you got into wrestling. Yes. So basically I got really good at losing. <laughs> no, it's actually a great mentality to have, right? Because I think when you can face losses continually and still show up, I think that's important. I think that has taught me so much and continued to propel me forward in my career that it wasn't, I was never defined by losses because it's actually was such a big part of the start. You know, I was physically at a disadvantage, you know, boys are going through puberty or already have been, plus they had more experience. And so it was very rare that I won matches. Um, but I started at 15 years old in my, as my freshman year in high school. And I decided to go out for wrestling because I cannot play basketball to save my life. <laughs> I mean, it's important to know what you're good at. And it's really important to know what you don't know, what you're not good at. Right. So I'm not a basketball player. It's not my thing, but that was the only female sport offered in the winter season. And so 
my best friend and I, Sharon, she's like little tiny, you know, thing. She wasn't going to be getting good at basketball either. And she was like, do you want to go out for wrestling? And I was like, they don't have a women's wrestling team. And she's like, yeah, but if they don't have one, they can't tell us we can't wrestle. So it was actually her idea. So I blame her for all of this, actually. Um, and the next day we were on the wrestling team. Wow. That's literally how it went. I was like, let me go ask my mom. And my mom was like, I don't think you're going to like that. But uh, sure, just don't tell your dad. And I was like, okay, I can do that. What did all of that teach you about persistence? How oh, persistence is, I mean, it's, it's everything. I think that goes back to the losses. Because my first day of wrestling was not a pleasant experience. Um, I, I clearly got the message that they were trying to get us to quit. And as quickly as possible. like, mm. And they almost had a system down. There had been girls that had c- tried to come out for the wrestling teams, you know, in years prior. And it was nothing new. Like, it, I mean, as far as like them trying, but none of them really stuck it out. And I think they thought, okay, we know how to deal with this. We're going to put them in with the best wrestlers. We're not going to teach them anything. We're just going to show them very clearly that girls do not belong here. Mm. And it was really tough. And I just remember after my first day, like my hair was matted, I had matte burns on my face, and I had just got my ass kicked for the better part of two hours. And I was in the locker room, and we were both kind of like, that was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I was just hooked. I was hooked from that point because it was so hard. It was so challenging that there was something very exhilarating in it, something that I didn't find in basketball, Mm. right? I was by no means any better at wrestling. I was probably worse, but it was exciting to me. And I thought if I just show up every single day, the law of diminishing return means that I'm probably going to have to get better than I am now, you know, relatively quick. I'm not saying I'm going to be like a champion anytime soon, but I'm not going to suck as bad as I did today if I just show up again tomorrow. So how do you go from high school wrestling to mixed martial arts UFC? Walk us through that journey. So similar story. I think it's fate. You know, sometimes when it just like falls in your lap and you're like, I don't really know what to do with this, but I'm just going to give it a whirl. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Mm-hmm. Well, when I went to college, um, I went to Central Washington University, a little college literally smack dab in the middle. Actually, on the campus is literally the cent- center of Washington State. And they had just cut the wrestling program for the guys the year before. So there were some male athletes that were wrestlers that didn't transfer out to other colleges and they were looking for something to do. And so they started a club sport, mixed martial arts club sport. Well, my friend Rosalia did karate and she was like, you got to come and check this out. And I was like, no, thank you. That sounds like a terrible idea. First of all, I don't wear pajamas anytime, but in bed. (laughs) (laughs) And I was also thinking like, I, I just don't have a desire to like hit anybody or get hit. This is a, does not appeal to me whatsoever. And it's so funny how little we know about ourselves at times, right? Has there ever been that, that moment for you guys when you're like, I just did not think I would like this and I've, I ended up loving it, you know? Maybe beer or wine is a great example, right? Nobody loves <laughs> their first sip. So she kind of, she kept bothering me about it. And I was like, okay, I get it. She's not going to let me live this one down. So 
I'll go and I'll humor her and, um, you know, then we can be done with this because I'm not going to like it. But I went and on my first day, I learned how to choke people. (laughs) What a job. You get to choke people on your first day. It was fantastic. (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is great. This is right up my alley. Um, It goes right in with this wrestling, but there's like a whole other game you get to play. What do you mean joint manipulations and chokeholds? This is great. So needless to say, I kept coming back. And then it wasn't long after that, I ended up at my first amateur event. I wasn't fighting, but I didn't even know really what fighting was. I mean, the UFC existed at that time and, mm-hmm. and it was coming about, but it still was very kind of taboo. You know, the human cockfighting kind of like people were like not sure what to make of this. And right. it just sponsors didn't want any part of it. Like nobody really. So to, to the point is I hadn't really watched it. It wasn't until I really went to this amateur event and I just lit up. I I had a visceral reaction to the fights. There weren't any female fights on that card, but at the end of the card, there was an announcement as the audience was leaving. I was kind of just taking it all in and I was kind of taken back and I was still kind of, my heart was kind of fluttery. And they said in three weeks, there would be an all female fight card. And if there was anyone in the audience that tells you how easy it was to get women fighting at that time. Um, they were struggling you know, severely to fill an all-female fight card, amateur fight card. Um, but I made my way down there, and I signed up, and I kind of never looked back. Wow. So many people who watch uh, UFC or MMA, they don't realize the science and the technical skills and the strategy behind it. They think it's barbaric, right? right. But there's so much strategy and, and thinking that goes into it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that, you know, angles mm-hmm. and like we were talking in the green room, it's not just your body weight, it's their body weight and manipulating right. everything. Right. So I am much more of a grappler. I prefer to grab a hold of people and I like to read pressure. Um, there's a whole game of just reading pressure. So, and people who are not good at grappling and wrestling will, will not understand that that's even a part of it. So they'll just try to force everything. You know, you'll be falling to the left and they're like, wait a minute, the right way to do a double leg is I have to go this way. And so they'll literally like pick you up and force you. And you were like 90% down this way. And it's like, oh, well, you kind of just either stood me back up or maybe they get the takedown. But point in case, um, for me, learning the whole game and really understanding everything from the striking to the grappling element and enjoying that whole process has just been like, it's mind blowing. I mean, it's, it's like if nobody's, if I assume most of you have not gone inside of a cage or an octagon and actually fought somebody, but the level of intelligence (laughs) that it takes, there are some sports I think that rely more on athletics than IQ. And I don't believe martial arts is one of them. I think it's a very heavily intelligence because people who don't have high fight IQs, the ones that force everything, they get kind of matadored, if you will. They become the bull and you become the matador. And eventually, you know, the matador usually wins. Um, so there's a strategy. to So I would say it would kind of be like sitting down and playing a really intense game of chess and then having a boxer come out and try to like hit you at the same time. 
Wow. Right? It's like you got to find your flow state in the chaos. You have to think through the strategy of moves or how you're going to checkmate this person. Because once you checkmate it, it's done. There's no more punches. There's no more submissions. There's no more anything. But imagine having to function under that, having that level of thought of an intense game of chess while somebody is trying to hit you. So how do you do that? How do you process all of this in real time? You're, you're getting hit and you're thinking here are my next moves. You've got a lot of pressure on you. Mm -hmm. How do you process this? Are there meditations that you've done? I would imagine reps go into it. How do you prepare yourself for those moments in the ring? Well, breathing helps. Let's start there. I always tell like a lot of new people, they hold their breath a lot and that just gets you tired really fast. So breathing just helps for, for me anyways, to center me and keep me in that moment and also keep my body kind of fresh, if you will. You know, oxygen is kind of important when you're doing in sports. I think it's important if we're doing anything, but I mean, in sports, you get tired very fast if you don't have it. Um, but then repetitions. I, this last fight that I had it was my, I think my best performance where I really put a lot of the dots together. I really connected a lot of the dots. So I fought, um, December 2nd, 2023 and it was great. It was 10, eight rounds every single round until the third round. And I got a choke and a finish and I didn't really come out with barely a scratch on me. It was amazing, but we did so many repetitions Mm -hmm. that I was sick of it. I was like, if I have to drill this one more time, and of course, you know, I did every single day, twice, twice a day I drilled, but it it got very monotonous. You know, it kind of takes the fun out of it when you have to like do the same thing over and over. But I knew exactly what I was going to do when I showed up and I did it and I executed it. And so I think that repetitions are important. And it's something I think I lost a little sight of as you know, being a veteran, when you first start out, you drill a lot because you have to learn everything. And then as you become more mature and you become more more seasoned and you become more of a veteran, you're kind of like, I want to play with things. I still want it to be fun. I still want to learn things. And you kind of get away from like the bread and butter. And it really brought it back to the bread and butter this time. I'm like, what is it that got me to a world title? What was it? It was that monotonous every day. Mm -hmm. I'm going to show up and this is how I'm going to pave the yellow brick road to where I want to go and how I'm going to win this fight. And so we drilled a ton this last camp and I certainly will never lose sight of that again, because I think showing up every day with a consistency and a game plan and knowing what you're going to go out there and do, but yet having the tools to go beyond that if you need to, but it's just helpful to be prepared. I mean, that's just like, was really setting myself up for success by drilling this and knowing exactly my fundamental movements and what I was going to do in that fight. And it paid major dividends. When you beat Holly Holm and became champion, how did your life change? Oh, that was such a surreal moment. So that was about 10 years in the making, almost 10 years to the day um, from my pro debut. And so much time and effort and drilling and all those things going into that moment. And I remember looking at myself before I walked out to the fight and I told myself, this is the last time you will look at yourself and not be a world champion. Mm. This is the last time you'll see yourself without that belt around your waist. So like, take it in because here we go. You manifested it. I did. I manifested it majorly and I manifested it this last fight as well. And I really feel like that is such an important part of the process is to, to see yourself getting there, to see yourself getting through adversity as well. 
You know, like when I do my visualizations, I don't just visualize winning. I don't just visualize where I want to go. I literally visualize getting knocked down and getting back up and Mm. getting rocked and getting back up and, and still going and then becoming better for even those turbulent moments. Cause I think it's important to be prepared that it's not always going to go smooth sailing. You know, obviously we drill and we game plan and we try to set up for success, but that's just not the reality. It's not why we do this sport. If it was like that every time, I think it would be boring. Right. So I think that manifesting and then to answer your question, how did it change my life? Well, I mean, becoming a champion in anything is, is I think it's, it changes your perception of you, like what you're capable of to, to set out for such a prestigious goal, you know, and mind you just in 2013, just well, a little over 10 years ago now, now we're in 2024. Um, Women were not fighting in the UFC. It wasn't allowed. Dana White was loudly shouting from the rooftops that women will never be a part of the UFC. And I remember thinking, well, you haven't seen me fight yet, you know? So some people might call it cocky or arrogant. I called it again manifesting. I was seeing where I wanted to go and I was on a path to make that happen. And that was part of my visualization. That was part of my process to get there. And then once we did get into the UFC and then I'm fighting for gold and Holly Holm had just knocked out Ronda Rousey. So she was coming hot off the press. You know, I certainly was, I think, expected to get head kicked also. And I, I fortunately in the fifth round was able to sink in that Renee choke and I held onto it like a dog on a bone <laughs> and, and it changed my life forever. Um, in, in other people's perception, but also in myself, I know what I'm capable of when I really buckle down and do what needs to be done. And I have the drive and determination to do that. And I, I remember going to the event that night, also thinking of another trippy statistic that I was one of two women in the entire world fighting for a UFC world championship. Mm. That just blew my mind, you know, and then to be the one to like walk out with the belt. It's like, I'm one of one. Right. That's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, it was for me. That was it's, it's incredible. I mean, like you said, there's very few things in the world in your life where you can say I'm one of one. Yeah. So uh, the importance of building a good team, whether it's in business or sports, how did you build your team, your training staff, physical, mental, to prepare you to make you a champion? Uh, again, you know, I think it's the energy that you put out. Does that sound weird or cliche or like, I don't know, does that sound odd? Because I, I, I really believe that as we develop, I mean, it's, I guess it's not because you'll see people who are not successful in life or, or maybe they have uh, addictions or issues and they are surrounded by people who are very similar in that mindset, right? That also are struggling or having these. And so I feel like as I was dead set on this goal, like the right people came into my life. And I, I don't think I could have planned that. I don't think you can just like go out and you just know the right people. Um, and not everybody's always been right either. I've also had to navigate that and figure that out and say, thank you for, you know, working with me this camp, but moving forward, I have to make some changes. And I, I have just navigated that the best that I can, but I think there's a lot of fate and I think there's a lot of destiny and I think there's a lot of meant to be, if you're just not afraid to take the initiative and just Mm -hmm. go for it. I mean, I think too many people are, are just, they're, they're paralyzed by fear, hmm. right? They're just, they're in a state of paralysis. Like, I'm just not sure what to do. I'm like, just pick one thing. Mm-hmm. Just pick like one 
It could just be like putting your socks on. I'm talking like real simple. Right. Like, I don't know what to do today. Like, I can't even get out of bed. I'm so overwhelmed. I need to do this. I need to do that. Like, so just start with one thing and just go and then put your foot in front of the other. And eventually you're going to be further than you were if you just sat in that sat in that paralysis of fear and overwhelm. So for me, sometimes it's really simplifying it down to what is the one thing that I can do or what's the what, what can I control? Because this is another thing. I like to control things, right? I don't. I, I prefer to just know exactly what's going to happen. I'd like to control things. You can ask my fiance. He knows all about that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's really challenging for me when I can't have that control when I, or when more is unknown than isn't. But I, that's, again, the beauty of it. That's why I fight because I can't control the situation. Right. Right. So I like, I also like the challenge. And so I think it's finding the balance of like, okay, what can I focus on to like quiet my mind and be like, okay, this is what I can focus on. Let's not get obsessed with what we can't control. This is what I can control. So that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to get to a situation that I absolutely cannot control. And I'm going to try to control it the best that I can. And so it's always that balance of like pushing the edge of the envelope, stepping outside the comfort zone but focusing on the things that bring you comfort in the chaos. It's great advice. Where do you see UFC going from here? I mean, you just talked about how 10, 11 years ago, women weren't yeah. part of UFC. It's grown leaps and bounds. They've got this great training facility here, you tell me. Um, you know, the broadcasting rights have grown. There are large audiences on social media. Where do you see it going from here? I think it's only going to continue to grow. I imagine we'll see more expansion into other countries and we'll see more. Um, I mean, I feel like the women's side of MMA is kind of in this interesting limbo because that one we had a 145 pound weight class and then it kind of was just not never really filled out. But 135, 125, 115 are all fantastic and great. So I think we just need to continue to develop there. And um, the future of the UFC is uh, people like fighting. People like watching people punch each other. So I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. So I imagine people will continue to spend their money and support. And like, how many of you have been to a live UFC event? Anybody here? Yeah, there's okay. okay so there's a few people. I mean, you just know, like, when you go, it's just so different. It's so exhilarating. It's such a neat experience. It's cool to watch it from home too. I usually opt for that because I like to avoid the chaos. I'm a little more of an introvert and a homebody, but um, it's it's thrilling and incredible to go. So I do recommend it if you ever get a chance. Like go one time, just check it out, give it a try. It's pretty cool. But um, it's just gonna, I think, grow. It's yeah. Good. And you mentioned so you won in December. You want to continue fighting. Do you have a, a runway? Like, I want to fight for five more years or 10 more years. I know you have little ones at home. You're a mom now. Yeah. How long do you want to keep doing this? I I still want to make that one final run at the title. So okay. I think however long that that takes, but it could be one year. It could be two. I don't see much longer than that because I've already done so much. And I'm also totally at peace with it if I don't accomplish that because I've already accomplished it. <laughs> I've already done it. But wouldn't that be like the Rocky story, like come to life, that come back from come from behind? Like everybody thinks like she's done. There's no way like she couldn't do that. And I'm like, I've heard this story before. Um, let's see what I can do. And so that's really my goal. I, I think, again, going to back to that last fight, Things changed a lot for me. So I had lost two fights prior to that. And they were very close losses. 
they were decisions and they were all striking. And I'm not a, I'm not a striker. I can strike. I will strike. I've knocked people down. I hurt people. But um, it's not what got me to the dance. Right. Wrestling and grappling is what got me to the dance. And so I, again, had to go back and reinvent myself. I'm like, what did, was I missing in those two fights? Why didn't I, what was I, what was wrong? So I built a great team around me. My fiance, Johnny, and Kirk White have been two exceptional people that really helped me bring that glue back. So I think the team is really important because there's no way I could have done that on my own. But again, the mental part of it, the manifesting, learning to be present, learning my breath work, learning all these things. I know it sounds probably just kind of like, oh, you know, that's not the something cool and shiny that probably everyone wants to hear, but it's what works. It's the basics. And I think um, maybe sometimes people fail in the sense that they get too carried away with like the ooh and the ah of everything. And it's not really, I don't believe that's really what makes champions. I believe it's the person who's willing to show up and do the same thing that they've been doing for the last three months, that they just want to gag about even thinking about doing that same move a hundred more times, you know? But it's like that person that will show up every day and be consistent is the person that finds the success and eventually gets the ooh and the on. Everybody wants to hear like, oh, what's the, like, where was, you know, I want, we want to hear about the last 5%, like when you won the title, you know? <laughs> it's like, no, what about, like, there's like a lot more before that that wasn't glamorous or cool or with a lot of money or fame or recognition that got me to there. The journey, right? Yeah. I've heard you talk about, it used to be about winning and losing. Yep. And there's a lot more to it, like you just said, than just the winning and the losing. Mm -hmm. And there's little victories in the process. How long did it take you to kind of come to that realization of learning that lesson? So in 2016, I became the world champion. I lost the world championship. And then I fought one more time. I lost again. And I realized, well, I didn't realize at that time, but I was basically a candle that was lit at both ends and I had broken myself open in the middle and lit the center wicks as well. Wow. I mean, I was burning bright, but I was, I was, my trajectory was going down because I had not figured out how to put anything back in, you know, it was all about like what I can put out. And eventually that kind of catches up to you. And I had also really tied my value and identity to being a fighter and then being a winner. So I didn't know what I would like outside of fighting. And I also didn't know how I would value myself if I wasn't, a, wasn't winning. Like if I was a winner, if I was winning, I was a winner. If I was losing, I was a loser. Mm. And that is very detrimental because when one, two people go in the octagon, one comes out with a loss. It's just the odds are like right. at some point you're going to lose. And once I had burned myself out, um, I ended up losing two fights in a row and I lost my world title and I just hit rock bottom. And I really realized that I had to change some things from the ground up, from the foundation up. So I retired. And I, I thought, I don't ever want to feel like that inside of a fight again. I don't ever want to show up and be on autopilot. I don't want to not be invested. I don't want to be numb. I don't want to be burnt out. I don't want to be exhausted. I want to enjoy the process. And if I can't do that, then I'm, I'm never doing this again. So for five years, I was away from the sport. And I, then I met my fiance, I had my two kids and anyone who has kids in here probably understands that your children propel you in a different way. They just really push you to be your best because I believe my ceiling is their floor. 
So I'm like, I'm going to raise the roof in this place. Like this, I'm going to be the best version of myself. And um, when I came back to the sport, I really had understood that there's so much more to life than a single day, a one loss, a one win. We would put a lot of pressure as athletes on ourselves for one winning or losing. Right. Well, yeah, a lot goes into it, but it doesn't define me at the end of the day. Like I'm still who I am. Still wake up with the you know lovely, cute little faces of my kids and my family and you know my fiance and all these. I mean, I just I've worked hard for that, and so now I just I'm just enjoying the ride. Wins and losses do not define me. I honestly was. I was, I mean, I was sad when I lost those two fights before this one. I was, you know, I was bummed, of course, because people, I don't, I'm not the only one sacrificing. Like, everybody sacrifices around me. My parent, my mom flies down from Washington to watch the kids. The kids get less time with me. They don't understand why I can't pick them up from school. Like, they're upset with me half the time. You know, they're just like, Mom, why are you not here, what, like, as much as we want or need you? And I have to try to explain in, you know, three- or five-year-old lingo or, or even younger when I first was starting. My son was only one when I had my first fight back and everyone pays the price. And so when I lose, that's the problem is like, sometimes I feel the guilt of like, oh my gosh, everyone sacrificed. Like I'm okay. But like, what did I put everyone else through? And like, I didn't come through, I didn't pull my own weight. And then I had to, um, go back again and say like, well, what is it that I needed to change? What did I need to adapt? What did I need to adjust? And I really feel like I hit the nail on the head this last fight. So I, I can't wait for, you know, to get back in there and do it again. Well, I'm glad you learned that lesson. That's a valuable lesson. Um, in about 10 minutes, we're going to open it up to questions from the audience. If you have a question for Misha, you can uh, raise your hand and we'll allow a couple audience questions. I want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, you're an elite athlete, but you're so much more than that as well. Um, let's start with, you've built this amazing social media following. We're here at the Boingo Innovation Center. They help people connect with each other. That's a big part of their business. You really connect on social media with your fans. What's been the recipe for you to connect with them? Just being myself. That's the mm. re biggest recipe, I think, um, being authentic. And sometimes easier said than done, you know, because you think like, well, what do they want to see? And you're like, well, this is what they're going to see because this is what it is. Like, I don't know what they want to see, but this is what they're going to see. And uh, I think that people do appreciate that at the end of the day. And, um, yeah, then there's just a great support system too, you know, like helping me to do everything. So I couldn't be more in a more grateful place in my life. That's another thing, you know, for my fans, for that following, for my sponsors, for everybody who kind of helps the world go around for me because it's not a one-person job. Let's talk about some of your sponsors. Uh, I know you work with Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. Um, when you're going to work with a company, what are the elements that you look for in order to say yes? So I look for something that is that is true and authentic to myself. Mm -hmm. So granted, I'll be completely honest, I do not drink as much as I used to. I don't drink very much at all anymore, but, but after a good win, like a nice cold beer is just, it's so good. Like, I just love it. Ah, oh, it's so nice. So I appreciate those moments, even though they're for farther and f further between now. Um, but when I enjoy a good beer, you know, 
this is a good day. I promise you that. I don't enjoy beers on a bad day. I only enjoy beers on a really good day. So um, there's that. And I also work with Trackhouse, who, if you're familiar with NASCAR, they are um, they have the drivers 99 and 1. So Ross Chastain is on their team. But they're so much more than just like NASCAR. They are really expanding out into the world of athletes. And they're going to build a performance center as well that I think more athletes, kind of what the UFC is doing here, um, mm-hmm. the UFC Performance Institute. So it's um, primarily for UFC athletes they to come and train there for free. So all of the things there, we get physical therapy, our meal planning, um, even things like DEXA scans, which will um, measure your body composition, um, sports science, all of that, and workout regimens. Like we can go in and we have trainers that build whole plans for us. All of these things are available to us for free, but other athletes can come and, and enjoy that as well. They just have to pay. That's the difference. So, um, yeah, does that did that answer your question? Oh, and what team, what things do I want to? Yeah, I mean, it yeah. seems like you're in the health and wellness space, I definitely right? am. Yeah, my love language is helping you win. That's true. I love to help people live their best life because I, as an athlete, understand performance, but I also understand it from a very human perspective. Like I've really dialed it back and said, like, life is just one big performance. How good do you want to do it? Like, how good do you want to feel about it? And how how well do you want to live until the day you die? Like, personally, I want to live to like Whatever my day is, let's say 99, right? We're going to shoot high. 99. I want to be great. I want to be able to climb ladders and clean gutters <laughs> and do push-ups and do pull-ups at 99, and then I want to die. That's it. Like, there's no drift off. It's just going to be, like, done, right? I, I want to maximize my life and quality of life until the day that it's, like, time to go to the Golden Gates, right? So I also want to help other people do that. I don't think people really know what it feels like to operate at 100. People who wake up and need coffee every morning, I'm not I'm not hating on y'all, but you don't know what a good night of sleep is. If you wake up and you need coffee, you need it. You just don't function without it. You did not sleep well. Mm. Right? You're doing some things wrong. Like you got to wake up, you got to get morning light in your eyes. You got to touch your feet on the ground. You got to do some things that are free, completely free. But they make a huge difference. They put a little bit back in the bucket. You know, coffee's not putting things back in the bucket. It's just helping rev the engine up so that you can get through the day. But I think ultimately you're kind of robbing yourself of some quality in your life. And yeah, but I mean, in theory, potentially, maybe shortening the lifespan a little bit too, just forcing the engine to go when you're not actually recharged. Right. So um, I do enjoy that. I enjoy helping people in wellness and and helping um I took a course in behavior change as well. So I have a certification in that. And so kind of understanding the thought process of like why people fail to make change and like helping people make those changes. So you're an entrepreneur as well. Like I think someone listening to this needs to partner with you and open up some like health and wellness institutions. And and I just think your experience as someone who's been an elite athlete who understand, understands the physical and the mental aspects of it. Is that something that you'd be interested in doing it at mm-hmm. some point? Yes. So I was partnered with a wellness center here in Las Vegas and business is so interesting. I learned a lot in my first year and it wasn't the right move for me 
with that setting with the partners and that. So I sold my shares back and now I'm kind of in a transitionary period where I'm looking for what is the next thing? You know, I'm still competing. I'm still momming. I've still got all those things going, but I'm kind of like open for what the, the future is going to bring. And so I do have a couple things on the horizon that I'm in talks with that I do believe will be big moves coming here soon. So just be on the look, look out for that because I, I do like health and wellness and performance, you know, wellness kind of has this, um, I think sometimes like men hear it and they're like, Oh, that's, that sounds kind of soft. Like it's not quite right for me. And so like, I kind of like performance in the sense because I'm an athlete and I'm the same way. Like, I don't want to just be well, like I want to perform. I want to do everything the best way possible. Like I want to be the best mom. I want to be the best athlete. I want to be the best cook. I'm so competitive in so many things that I do. So I look at that, like, why not competitive, get competitive with your life. Like, why do you want to feel shitty every day? That's not acceptable, you know? And there's so many things we can do to better that. So that's kind of going to be my mission, I think, in Chapter 2, whether it be athletes or just normal people. For me, I don't really distinguish the two. I just want people to have, like, their personal 100. Like, if you're dedicated, I'm dedicated. If you want to be better, I want you to be better. The other thing that's not exactly healthy, but your nickname is Cupcake. Yeah. There's got to be a cupcake company out there. Sprinkles or Molly's or someone that wants Um, to partner with you. Molly's, yeah. Molly's is, oh, they're my favorite. So I fought in Chicago and I won and I popped into this little bakery, Molly's. And they were so damn good. They use (laughs) us, I think it's a Swiss meringue buttercream and it just melts in your mouth. It's phenomenal. Um, amazing little bakery. So yeah, I mean, if they wanted to work with me or sprinkles, there just has to be certain times of the the year. They have to understand that I basically, you know, I can't, I have to look the other direction yes. you know, when I've got to make weight. But I mean, life is about balance too. You know, it's gonna be wrong when I'm talking about dedication. Uh, it's all in context with the time and the place. Cause, um, I certainly love my, I like to eat. I love to eat food in general and I like sweets, but it's just all in moderation. You know, I, I don't want it to be like an everyday thing where you get sick of it. Right. And so. Okay. Yeah. So if someone from Sprinkles or Molly's or any cupcake company is listening, this is a partnership yes. that has to happen at some point. Another thing people don't know about you, uh, Kevin Harvick, who just retired from NASCAR, he manages you, right? Like he, he has does. a management arm of his business and they help you with your business management, correct? Yes, they do. So Kevin Harvick Incorporated is a sports management firm that manages me. Um, and they have been fantastic. They've only managed three UFC athletes, myself and Cowboy Cerrone being the two primary. And Cowboy Cerrone just retired this last year. I'm still, you know, giving it a whirl. But um, they just dabbled in the sport of MMA, and they've done so good by us. They, And I'll tell you what. So I fought in Orlando, and Cowboy was on the same card as me. He won. I won. And we are going back to the press conference, and he's standing kind of in line in front of me. And I, I he's wearing jeans at this point, and he, he's got um, pockets full of Budweiser. It's like cans of Budweiser, like everywhere. And I was like, do you need all of those? Like, can I have one? <laughs> and so he's like, here. So he gave me one. And and, and I kind of took notice that his fight shorts, he had way different sponsors than any other MMA athlete. Like most of us had kind of like the same run of the mill, like, 
you know, same sponsors and he's got like easy go and Budweiser and all these different sponsors. Like where, 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 who manages you? And that's kind of how I got in touch with Kevin Harvick was through cowboy through us sharing that beer and, and pizza at the post fight press conference. Because, yeah, who doesn't like a beer after a victory, right? That's amazing. You never know when opportunity might knock, right? Yep. Um, Okay, so fast forward like 10 or 15 years from now, you have shared with me that maybe you're on a farm. Maybe you've got some cattle. Maybe you're raising organics. Like, is this the dream? That's the dream. So I bake my own bread like every Whoa. couple days now. I've really just become so much more of that kind of home, like homestead life in Vegas. So I I like to grow my own herbs and vegetables, and I want to expand that out to like grass-fed beef. And I I'm just so tired of the garbage food and things out there that are just laden with toxins. And, you know, that's just because my body is my business. I do have to pay attention to that. And then you have kids and you're like, wait, what are they putting in that food? And so I've become a little obsessed with um, cutting out the bullshit. And um, that might mean that I take matters into my own hands and DIY it like buy some land and say, I will raise my own meat. Then I will get my own milk. Then if we can't have raw milk, that's illegal for crying out loud. We can have cigarettes and, you know, even alcohol, which I do, you know, sometimes take part in, but we can have those things, but you cannot have the choice to have raw milk. So, you know, that's interesting to me, you know, raw milk has a lot of the benefits to it that, you know, it's a milk when it's not, when they heat it up so hot, it's like, it's dead. It doesn't have any of the pro the probiotics and the natural good things. It's for your gut. So this bothers me. You know, I'm just the kind of person I don't really like to take no for an answer. I want, so I'll just do it myself. That's the goal eventually. I think we need more of this content on your social media platforms, maybe yeah. a YouTube channel, maybe even a, a cooking show. I, I mean, have chickens I, too, by the way. Okay. I have chickens. So <laughs> it, it has begun. I technically have a little tiny farm in Las Vegas. That's amazing. All right, we're going to take a few questions from the audience. If you have a question for Misha Tate, uh, raise your hand, and Griggs will come find you with the uh, the microphone. Don't be shy. Come on. How many times are you going to have a chance to talk to you? I know. They haven't been thinking. They forgot you told them. That you, I they know. Were have to you guys aren't paying attention. <laughs> There's one back there. What was your, uh, oh, sorry. What was your favorite fight um, in your career? Personally, it's the Holly Holm finish for me, but um, do you have anything that really stands out to you? And I appreciate that because that finish for me was the pinnacle of my career up until this point. You know, that's the one where it's like everybody remembers that kind of come from behind win because I was a little down on the scorecards and then I got that big finish. I mean, that was a huge moment for me. It's the one where I, I reached the top. But there's just been so many fights along the way that I really feel like have either made me or broke me and then forced me to reinvent myself. But I personally would say the fight that I'm the most proud of is this most recent one because it's been a lot of trial and error and trying to figure that out and then to come out there and really hit the nail on the head mentally, physically, emotionally, put the right camp together with the right people um, and the right game plan and manifest it. I mean, I manifested that for months. I remember walking around because it was in Austin, Texas, 
the, the night after weigh-ins, which is the night before the fight, and just being like, come on, Misha, like, you got to do this. Like, you, you, you've got to do it. And just really giving myself, like, that pep talk and just being in that moment of, like, you are going to win this fight tomorrow. You are going to take her down. Actually, I remember thinking, I want to win this fight. I was like, but you never know. Like, a fight could go anyway. And I kind of like that what if? Like some people will correct me when I say, oh, if I win this fight. And they'll be like, no, when? And I'm like, I think when is like a false security mm. for me. Because if means like you got to work hard because there is like there's a chance that you couldn't. Like, ooh, that kind of lights a fire under me, right? Like when is like kind of like I've already got this. Like, no, I know that like she's coming here with fists and hand wraps and she's ready to take my head off and um she will if I let her so like it's like an if I win so like I stay humble and motivated in it and so um for me just remembering like it's it's always like an if you're gonna set yourself up for the best success but like if I didn't win it's all right it's like back to the drawing board you're going back and you figure it out and you reinvent but I was like oh but this was the funny part like the stubborn part of me was like okay so if I win I was like but I am taking her down. Like that will happen. I was like, I don't know if I'll win, but I will take her down in this fight because that was all I drilled the entire camp. And I was like, if I can't do that, then you will never see my face around MMA again. Like I will hang my head in shame. Um, but I was like, no, I'm, I'm definitely going to take her down. And I, I think I did within like five to seven seconds every single round. Wow. So for a lay person like me, is that kind of the goal, hey, if I'm going to take someone down, it's got to be fast. It's five to seven seconds, or does it, it fluctuate? Was, no, it was this fight. I can't say it'll be the same the next fight, right. you know, because you never want to be predictable in the sense, too. Okay. Right? You don't want to just run into anything or, you know, but this fight was like, I was out to prove something. It was like guns blazing. I'm doing what I'm good at. I'm going back to the drawing board, and I will accept nothing less than that. Like, I will take her down. That I was absolutely sure of. And the rest just kind of unfolded according to that just kind of kept building off of that takedown and um you know the next fight it just all depends who you're fighting and you know how it goes like you have to just adjust you know some people are not as good to you know to run in on like like holly Holm, for example you know she's got such amazing footwork as she moves laterally so well left and right and she's got that great head kick so it's like you have to be a little more calculated, I think, with people like that. But in this fight, this matchup, I really felt like I could go out there and pose my will. So you're like the savvy vet now. You connected all the dots in the last I fight. I think so. I think so. And I've also, it was kind of like, you know, what What was I waiting on the two fights before that? Like, why wasn't I just getting in there and getting after it and grabbing a hold of people and throwing them to the mat? Like, that's what I'm good at. And that's what I need in more of my fights. So if any of my opponents are listening to that, that's what they can prepare for. Okay. I'm coming for it. Any other questions from the audience? We'll take one or two more if you've got a question. Come on now. Don't be shy. There's one in the back. Oh, a lady. All right. Hi, Misha. My name is Teresa. And I apologize if you already covered this. I came in a little bit late, but I'm interested and curious about your origin story. What was that moment where you decided this is what I'm going to do? Well, I can talk about the moment that I decided that MMA was for me because it wasn't after my first fight. So my first fight... um, I was at an event. I'll just recap that very quickly. I was at an event. I watched the event. They announced that they were going to have an all-female fight card in three weeks. And I was like, 
I just signed up. Like that was insane to do that because I literally did not have any striking training whatsoever. And I barely knew like a handful of submissions. It was pretty much just a wrestler. I went out in the first round. I took her down. It was the easiest takedown of my life. And then in the second round, she put me in a Muay Thai clinch, which is kind of like what they put their hands behind your head and the collar, the, um, forearms go on your collarbone and you you can't really like just get down and under them or at least I didn't know how to at that time because I didn't even know what that move was and she began kneeing my face and she yeah I heard a laugh it was it was funny now looking back on it but it was quite shocking at the time because I I got my nose broken so badly like there was blood everywhere and I kept fighting through that round and I was winning again by the end of it but then they threw the towel in my corner, my corner between the rounds was like, we're not letting you go back out. I mean, they were mortified. They'd never seen a female take that kind of damage and they just didn't know how to handle it. And it was a good decision because I was a very broke college kid and, um, more damage was not necessary at that point. I wouldn't have been able to afford the medical bills. Hence why I didn't go to the hospital. Um, so, uh, at that point I knew I wanted to fight again, but there wasn't really like, I wasn't even getting paid. I didn't get paid for that. It was amateur. So I didn't see like a future. I knew I wanted to do better than that, but it really wasn't until 2008 when I got signed to fight Elena Beef Maxwell. Who? Yes. The name, right? <laughs> Did they just paint a picture for you? Okay. Beef. Yes. Beef. And she was beefy. I fought her up a weight class at 145 pounds in her hometown that her coach was the head that was the main event. He was the headliner. Kung Lee. I don't know if anybody knows who Kung Lee is, but um they thought for sure that I was just gonna like get my, you know, I was gonna I was gonna lose. I was gonna get knocked out. But I went in there and I wrestled her down and I took her down every round and like almost got an arm bar at one point and I I just wasn't quite good enough with my submissions. But anyways, I won. And they being strike force, which was like the pinnacle for women at that point, because we were still not in the UFC, um, actually offered me a multi-fight contract off of that fight. So I was I was definitely brought in to lose, and I I won, but it was just one fight. And after that, they offered me multiple fights with the organization. I was like, oh, you mean like I could actually have some job security in this? You know, I was, still wasn't making very much. I mean, I to. To, to, to paint the, the start of my career in MMA, I lived in a 22-foot RV for probably two or three years on um, Dennis Hallman's property in Olympia, Washington, which was where I was from, which was at, at the gym. Basically, it was like a barn. It was a barn with padded walls. And that's where we were trained every single day. And I made that sacrifice because I knew that I couldn't afford the time it would take for a full-time job and still train to do this. I was obsessed. I was absolutely obsessed. And so I sacrificed the luxury of like being able to afford an apartment or any of the other nice things um, just to be there and able to train at any time that I wanted to. And that was kind of my story. And so that it was during that time period that I got brought down to fight Elena Maxwell and I won and I got signed to Strike Force. And then I actually started to make like, I think my first, I think my fight against Elena Maxwell was like $1,000 and $1,000. And then I think my next Strike Force fights were like, it was like 1,500 and 1,500. And I think it would go up by 500 if you won on either end. So the next fight would be 2,000 and 2,000. But if you didn't win, it stayed the same. So that's really like what I was fighting for, but it was enough if I cut all the other expenses, 
which I had decided I was going to do. And by that point, I had actually quit going to college, which, you know, wasn't something my parents were super excited about. But um, destiny has a way. If you're fighting for the UFC championship today, what's that purse? Oh, the UFC championship now, if you're in a title fight, I mean, you if you're the contender, you're probably making close to half a mil. Okay. Yeah, as a contender, maybe 250. It kind of depends on the weight class. It kind of depends on the draw. It kind of depends on the champion. It kind of depends on pay-per-view numbers too. But like your base pay, I don't think most people are making less than like 250,000 to fight for a title. And then out of that, like you've got to pay your training staff. Right. Like it's not like that yeah. all goes to you. And you've champions got to... make more than that. Okay. But like I'm talking about contenders because sometimes the contenders, you, like, you lose and you never become a champion and you, who knows what happens there. So they, they don't always make, you know, as much. But the, the champions make pretty good money. We, we get pay-per-view points. That's good. I mean, so. it's a hard way to make a living. So you should be making really, yeah. really good money. Yes. No, it's not an easy way to make a living, but it's fun. I mean, you get paid to do what you love, but that's not really something you can complain about at the very least, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of people who go to work every day and hate their job and make $40,000 a year. Like, that sounds way worse, in my opinion. Or even if you're making 100000 or 200000 a year, if you absolutely hate what you do, it's like, uh, how much are you willing to sell yourself, to, you know, to be a slave to the dollar for? Yeah. All right, we've talked about a lot of different things here today. Um, in the next five years... What's the most important things that you want to do? Like you talked about continuing to fight. What are the other things on your list in the next five years? Well, oh gosh, there's so many things. I may want to start homeschooling my kids because I'm not, I don't, you're going to like start to get a feel for my personality. I'm not sure that I want to co-parent my children with the government, right? So there's a little bit of that to me. There's a little, I'm a little hard headed. Like I said, I'm competitive in everything and I really want the best for my kids. And um, I want to make sure that they're not like, isn't it weird that we teach our children from like ages zero to five, like strangers are bad. Like you'd be careful. Like don't go, don't talk to strangers. And then like the first day of kindergarten, we're like, bye. Here's a hundred strangers that I've never even met, but like, have a good day. Like it's kind of mind boggling to me. And so I just start to think about that stuff. Like, wait, am I actually making the right choice? So, um, maybe even opening some schools like app, um, Apogee has a really cool program that's different for children and how, um, the parent, the, the schooling goes, it's more like collaborative and like, um, there's more of a democracy, if you will, in the school, like there's voting and there's kind of like where they begin to like strategize and communicate and there's multi-grade levels. And I think that's so cool. So my kids are obviously a big priority. I also want to continue to help athletes and people alike to realize that there's a better way to live. There's a lot of things we could be doing for absolutely zero dollars and people just don't value it enough. Literally waking up at daybreak and going outside for two to 10 minutes is life-changing. We have photon receptors in our eyes that are made for the sun to like start our circadian rhythm and it's free and you will sleep way better. Like that's just a little piece of knowledge. Like if you can do that, I promise you, you probably might be thinking like, oh, if I need coffee today, I feel really good, slept good tonight, you know? So those things, and then um, maybe more farm to table kind of 
a thing, right? So if I get a farm going, I just don't see it stopping there. Like I want more regenerative farming. I want people to be able to have healthier choices and options. I think um, we do our hunting now in grocery stores, right? So like we, we're still primal beings, but like we walk into a grocery store and that's kind of like where we're, where, where we're hunting for our food. And I just don't think it's fair that everything should be like dodging a bullet because once you start learning the things that are in there and like how they market to kids and all the sugars and the cereals and that stuff, you kind of start to go like, this is a terrible game to play. Like I, this is not really fair. It's kind of like being at the casino, but like with your life, you know, like yeah. the casino is going to win usually. And, um, they didn't get to be, you know, multi-million billion dollar industries without, um, having some, something, knowing something that we don't. So I'm trying to play the game the other way and um, help people in all the aspects of like, you know, what nutrition, what goes in our body and how we navigate that. So that will be hopefully my staple and print on the world is helping people just do life better. Let's give Misha Tate a big hand. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was so fascinating. I I just love talking to elite athletes who have so many layers to them and you have a lot of layers to you beyond what happens in the octagon. And I'm glad that we got to talk about some of those things here today. Continued success to you both in the octagon and in business and motherhood. Um, I think you have some amazing things going on. I really appreciate you joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to thank Boingo for hosting us here again at their gorgeous innovation center. Um, It's just a treat to be here in Las Vegas. Boingo is such a wonderful partner to us for many, many years. Um, You can listen to this podcast, Sports Business Radio. We're on iTunes. We're on Spotify, uh, sportsbusinessradio.com. And every week we have interesting conversations on our show. I want to bring Mike Finley back up here for a moment. Give Mike a hand. Thank you. Wow, Misha, that was... Unbelievable. I, Did I, I do all right? Am I hired? Wow. <laughs> I actually want to talk to you about that. Uh, that was fantastic. Thank you for being here. Thank Brian, you. you're the best. Thank 20 you. 20 years he's been doing this. He's the best in the business. Thank uh, you. Look, we've got some refreshments and, uh, and some food in the back. We also have some cupcakes in honor of Misha. Yay! Uh, and please uh, visit our Better with Boingo uh, area. And thank you for being here tonight. Brian, Misha, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Sports Business Radio Roadshow presented by Boingo Wireless. Stay tuned for a bonus mini episode with updates on the Tiger Woods story right after this. 5G is here. Is your stadium ready? From an immersive fan experience to efficient game day operations, 5G is transforming sports and entertainment. If you're ready to jumpstart your 5G transformation, look no further than Boingo Wireless. Boingo is one of the largest operators of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They provide stadiums and arenas with state-of-the-art 5G networks and support teams across the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NCAA. I'm constantly interacting with sports executives, and the reason they love working with Boingo is because Boingo manages 5G and Wi-Fi networks end-to-end offloading very stretched IT teams. Whether your stadium is looking to support mobile ticketing, cashless payment, or connected operations, Boingo has you covered. But don't just take it from me. Their customers include world-class venues like Soldier Field, 
State Farm Arena, Petco Park, and University of Louisville. Boingo in 5G. Now that's what I call a win-win. For a limited time, Boingo has a special offer for sports business radio listeners. They're offering a free 5G assessment for your stadium or arena. To get started, simply email sbradio at boingo.com and mention this podcast. That's sbradio at boingo.com. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. Hey, everyone. Brian Berger and Brian Griggs here. little bonus segment for you at the end of our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Big news this week. We actually broke the news, so we definitely wanted to weigh in on it. We've talked about it the last few weeks on Sports Business Radio. Tiger Woods has parted ways with Nike after 27 years. Where will he go next? We don't know for sure. Um, As I posted on X the day before Tiger announced officially that he was leaving Nike, my sources tell me that he's going to on. So the same company that Roger Federer went to after he left Nike in 2018, uh, my sources tell me that Tiger Woods will eventually wind up at ON. He will get an equity stake in the company, much like Roger Federer did. Federer got a reported 3% worth $300 million back in 2018. I don't know what Tiger would be offered. I would expect that TaylorMade, who Tiger is with for his club and ball deal, will probably be aggressive. I don't know if they'll offer him equity. Um, Skechers, um, Grayson, uh, there's other companies that will come after Tiger. Does Tiger already know where he's going? Again, my sources tell me he's going to on cloud, on running. Um, But we will see. But Griggs, you know, as I said a few weeks ago on the show, like we're based in Oregon. I consulted for Nike for many years. I still have very good sources inside of there. That's, you know, kind of how I was able to break this story 24 hours before Tiger actually came out and announced that he was leaving Nike after 27 years. I'm just sad about this personally, because when I think of Tiger Woods and I think of Nike, I think they're synonymous with each other, much like Michael Jordan and Nike. I think Tiger is one of the two most important athletes that Nike's ever had, and Michael Jordan is the other. So this is a sad day for a lot of people. I agree. I mean, 27 years with anybody is, you know, yeah. an accomplishment and a big deal. So, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, we've like you mentioned, we talked about this for a couple of weeks. We knew something was in the works. Did we know if it was going to be a Nike full sign-out? Obviously not. But, uh, you know, Tiger, uh, he's a big deal. He's a, he's a first-name basis with everybody in the world. Everybody knows Tiger. So it's an important deal to wherever he ends up. And, you know, I think we've talked about, too, how many of these deals now are equity-based rather than just a million dollars for this. It's you get part of the company, you get part of, you know, the business side of it, which is uh, where a lot of these deals end up going. So it'll be interesting to see where he ends up signing. Yeah, I would guess that he's going to want equity as part of any deal, much like Federer did when he left Nike. Um, Most of the iconic athletes that can demand equity, like a Tiger Woods, are going to demand Equity is part of their deal. You know, there is the scenario where Tiger starts up the Tiger Woods collection completely on his own and he doesn't go to a brand. Um, that's a much heavier lift. Not saying he can't do it. He certainly has the resources to pull it off. It's just a it's a longer grind. And you would think he'd want to join an already existing company. 
Um, some of those companies that we just named, you know, they're growing. They can afford to give him some equity. And, you know, Tiger Woods brings a lot of notoriety to your product. So he is 48 years old. As I said a few weeks ago, to me, one of the keys to a partnership with Tiger isn't just the Tiger part of it. It's also Charlie. Charlie Woods is going to be iconic. He's going to reach your younger demo. Um, I think he's going to go down as one of the all-time great golfers. He has all the tools to succeed. And now that Tiger has parted ways with Nike, um, you know, they're not going to be in the Charlie Woods business either. So, you know, is this a package deal, Tiger and Charlie, to whatever company? Is Charlie going to do his own deal down the road with someone else? I don't know. But I would want to do something with Charlie just about as badly right now, maybe even more so than I do with Tiger. He's the future. Well, yeah. I mean, I think if you're looking at Tiger brand and golf, you got to keep that going. You got to keep the lineage going. You've got his kid is clearly in the game, knows how to play the game, is a lot like Tiger with his charismatic attitude and his passion for the game and his powerful, you know, he's just awesome to watch already. So I think you're right. I think why not try to, you know, work a deal where you get the next 27 years with Tiger 2.0, you know? So I think uh, that's a huge thing to watch. And I think You'd think Charlie would stick with dad. I mean, they seem like they've got a good relationship and he'd probably want to follow in some of those footsteps. So, you know, that's uh, I think that's really the exciting part. Like you said, not just Tiger, but the next, you know, part of Tiger 2.0 with Charlie. So a lot of people have asked me, what does this mean for Nike and Nike golf specifically going forward? Well, clearly Nike's getting out of the golf business. Um, Jason Day has moved on. Tiger Woods has moved on. They still have Scotty Scheffler and Rory McIlroy under contract, do they part ways with Scotty and, and Rory? Uh, that remains to be seen, but from everyone I've talked to, eventually Nike is going to be out of the golf business altogether. That's not how I would have done it. I would have made golf more lifestyle-focused, um, as we discussed with the Jordan brand and what they've done with Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan makes a reported $330 million a year. Um, that's just him. That's his take of the deal. So, you know, I don't know that Tiger could have been as big as Jordan as part of a Tiger collection lifestyle brand, but I think it was worth the risk. Um, Nike clearly didn't see it that way. And, you know, we've had people from Nike on our show in the last few years, and one of the biggest things that you, the listener, should know, it used to be categories at Nike. It used to be basketball, golf, tennis, football, running. Now it's men's, women's, and children. Those are the three categories. They're going away from using elite athletes to sell products. Um, you know, Michael Jordan is one of the few remaining iconic athletes that they work with. Yes, they have LeBron and Kevin Durant under lifetime contracts. We don't know what the terms of those deals are, but, um, you know, clearly they didn't want to do that with Tiger. They didn't want to do that with golf. Um, Tiger clearly felt like whatever Nike may have been offering, he could get more somewhere else as part of an equity play, probably. But, you know, Nike has really changed the way they've done business. Griggs, like I said, I consulted for them for many years, and it used to be they were looking for the next Michael Jordan. They were looking for the next Tiger Woods. Now it's all about, hey, uh, your kid wants to order the coolest pair of Nike shoes. They want to customize them in the colors they want. They want to have their name on it. And they want to have it at their door 24 hours later. 
that's much more appealing to this younger demo today than, hey, uh, Zion Williamson wears the Air Jordans and I'm going to buy them because Zion wears them or I'm going to buy Nike golf product because Tiger is peddling it. So they've changed how they do business uh, mainly with the athlete is not the soul of the brand anymore. They are not the focus anymore. It's much more of a global consumer company than it is, I would say, an athlete-based company. Well, and you, you mentioned the Jordan brand. Like, it is everybody. I mean, infants, babies are born in the hospitals, and they've got Jordans coming out of the hospital. Yeah. Up to women, old, older people, kids. It's customizable. It's available all over the place. And like with Tiger stuff, you see him wearing stuff, but can you go buy a Tiger shirt everywhere? No, you can't. So it's not as accessible. So I think that is something that maybe he's looking forward to is expanding that horizon, making it more available to everybody and making it customizable, like you said, too, where, hey, I want this one with the Tiger logo here. I want this over on the back. I want this color. So that's exciting if he can get that part of the deal and make it more accessible to everybody. Now, the one part that does excite me about all of this is I have some early Tiger Nike collectibles. Yeah. And I may post some of those on our Instagram at Sports Business Radio, but uh, those are now going to be rare commodities, right? Like Tiger and Nike are not going to be making anything together anymore. So, um, you know, if you've got one of those relics, it's kind of cool to to have one of those in, in your possession. But, you know, like I said, I've always been a, a big fan of Nike and their company and what they do. We're based in Portland, Oregon. I've done work for them just from a, a fan standpoint. I know I'm not supposed to be a fan. I'm supposed to be, you know, the professional delivering news to you. Um, I'm sad because I like Tiger and Nike product. I like the relationship. I love Tiger's relationship with Phil Knight. I will say this, and I, I strongly believe this, and there may be those out there that disagree. If Phil Knight were still in charge of all the happenings at Nike and the day-to-day, you know, he's more emeritus now, if he were still in charge of everything, I don't think this happens. I think Tiger gets a lifetime deal. I think Tiger's part of the fabric of Nike as long as he's alive. And I don't think they part ways. But because of the fact that, like I just said, the business model has changed. It's not athlete-centric anymore. It's more product-centric. That's why this happens. The people at Nike clearly don't think that the athletes move the product like they did, or at least they're not worth the return on investment. If you're investing hundreds of millions of dollars into an athlete, are you going to get a return on investment exposure-wise and product-for-product-wise that justifies that kind of investment? Clearly, they don't think so with basically anyone other than Michael Jordan. They do have other athlete endorsers. The other question I've been getting a lot this week What's going to happen to the Tiger Woods Center on campus? I have no idea. If I were Nike, I'd keep it. Even though you don't have a relationship with Tiger anymore, it's part of the campus. It's part of the history of the company. Um, some of Tiger's like most cherished relics are there. If Tiger's like, hey, I'm cool with you keeping it here on campus, um, I would keep it. But who knows? They may turn that building into something else that may become named after another athlete. That's part of the risk of these companies naming buildings after athletes is if you part ways with them or something happens, goes sideways, um, like with Lance Armstrong, you know, you have to take the name off that building and that building has been synonymous with that athlete's name for a very long time. So I don't know what's going to happen there. It's certainly a decision that Nike 
will have to make. Griggs, any final thoughts on this? You know, I was just thinking, like, with Nike, like, it's part of the history, like you said. It's not like he's been with them for five years or, you know, two years. 27 years is a long, long time. time. And he's a, everybody knows him. So I agree. I think make it a, almost a Tiger Museum kind of on Nike. And, you know, they, went, they were with him through all his, you know, struggles the last years before. You'd think they'd stick with it now and just keep the place open and, and let people come experience, you know, the past of, of Tiger and what he was and what he did with Nike. So I think I'm with you. Keep it. Well, and again, it may not be up to Nike. Tiger may say, hey, we're yeah. not working together anymore. I want my relics back. You know, I'm going to put them somewhere else in another museum or with my new partner. Like, I get it. But I don't know the answer to that. All I know is this. Sports Business Radio is the one that told you this story first. You know, there had been whispers about Tiger and Nike parting ways. I didn't want to believe it. I started digging into it. I talked to my very trustworthy sources. I don't break news very often. I'm not in the breaking news business, really. We want to bring you, you know, conversations with the people that matter in the world of sports and business. But I'm in Portland. I have this information. We gave it to you first. That's why we're a trustworthy, credible source. We've been doing this for 20 years. Look at our guest list and who's been on our show. You can see that, that we talk to the movers and shakers in the world of sports business. So that's why you should be listening to our podcast every week. That's why you should be following us on X at SB Radio, where I first broke this news, and on Instagram and TikTok at Sports Business Radio. All right, that's it for this bonus segment, our thoughts on Tiger Woods. We will talk to you on the next edition of Sports Business Radio. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Sports Business Radio Roadshow, presented by Boingo Wireless from the Boingo Innovation Center in Las Vegas. Thanks to Misha Tate and Boingo Wireless. Thanks also to our team at Sports Business Radio, Ryan Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and Nicole Wardle. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, threads and Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Griggs Productions.